Hello, and welcome back to Break the Twitch. I am your host, Anthony Ungaro. You know that feeling of wanting to check your phone even though you just put it away? Well, that's the Twitch, and it's everywhere. So we're here to help you break it. Each week, we interview an amazing guest in person, filmed with three cameras, and share this conversation with you. And in the spirit of promoting intentional consumption, we're working hard to keep this podcast sponsor-free. That means no interruptions during the episode and no pitches for internet mattresses. Now, there are two ways that you can help make this happen. You can go to patreon.com slash break the twitch if you're willing to contribute anywhere from $1 to $9 per month. Or you can join the Break the Twitch member community for $10 a month and get a massive library of audio content and more. Just go to breakthetwitch.com slash community to sign up for that. Every single contribution matters so much and helps keep this model alive. We really need and appreciate your support. In episode 27, I sit down with Charlie Gilkey, the founder of Productive Flourishing and author of the forthcoming book, Start Finishing, How to Go from Idea to Done. It's available for pre-order right now and comes out next week. Charlie shares his experience in the Army as a joint logistics coordinator, while pursuing a philosophy PhD and how it positioned him to do his best work. Since 2007, he has helped thousands of creatives and changemakers take meaningful action on work that matters through his company, Productive Flourishing. There are some amazing frameworks and words of wisdom in this episode from start to finish. Yes, pun intended. So carve out some time and dig deep into this episode. Thanks so much for all of our supporters that help make this conversation possible. And let's go ahead and start the show. So I started Productive Flourishing oh, in 2007, I think would be the, the official time, and at that time, I was simultaneously pursuing a PhD in philosophy. So I'm a social and political philosopher and ethicist. Um, and I was also an Army Joint Force Military Logistics Coordinator, which is a mouthful. But it's basically making sure that the Army, Air Force, and Navy were on the same sheet of music about where stuff was going and who was taking it there and when it needed to be there. And you would think that that would be a well-oiled machine, and it is because you have people like me oiling that machine every day through those interactions. And it's super funny because looking back on it, I was like, what was going on? But at the time, I was like, okay, I'm pursuing that career in the Army. I'm also pursuing this career in academia. Um, my wife and I had just bought a house, and so that's a whole project if, if you've never done that. And it was you know, improving the basement, and then I wanted to be a good husband. And so I had all these projects and I was like, man, I got to get my stuff together because I'm not getting it done here. Um, and like any good scholar or any good officer we do, I'm like, you know, I'm not the only person with this problem. Like what have other people tried to do? What, what's out there? So I started reading, you know, the greats, getting things done, you know, seven habits, all those books. And while they took me partially the way there, I kept having to synthesize and translate and sort of figure out how to apply some of the stuff I had learned from the army and some of the stuff that I was super um, deep into in philosophy into the stuff to bridge those gaps. That's a pretty unique position. Being in that programming 
while being in the army. How did you walk the two lines of that? Part of it is diving deeper into the context. I was working in the um, Army National Guard at the time. And there are different ways where you can have roughly a three-quarter time position, right? So it wasn't full-time, full-time on base or deployed. I, I did deploy, but during this period of time that I'm talking about, I was not deployed and I was designing military training environments for joint forces and for um, our international allies um, on how to defend against convoys and things like that. So, um, but it wasn't nine to five most of the time. It was when I could get it in or how I programmed my work with the National Guard to make that work. And so I would do a lot of blocks of time. So I might work Thursday through Monday working in the Army and then Tuesday through Thursday in the evening working on my graduate degree because that was super flex time. So it was just all about figuring out how to put the square block in the square hole and the circle in the circle block in the circle hole. And so I had a lot of time. You know, what I was doing then is the remote work that's really normal now. But a decade ago, we were still just really learning how to do that. It was new. It's super new. Yeah. And so I just kind of unlocked that really, really early. And so that's how I was able to compartmentalize and containerize my work. Um, but even still, like, academia was growing outside of the confines of what I was doing and, you know, as well as the army, right? And so that's logistically how I did it. You know, people, I think, see that way of being as a military officer and they see that way of being as a philosopher as like two radically opposed things. And it's not really. Yeah. Um, it's what are you doing? How are you doing it in the world? And how are you leading people? And how are you, you know, accomplishing certain things? And so for me, it never really felt like to incompatible lives internally. Externally, you got your jobs, you got your conferences, you got all those different types of things that you got to do. But I realized that for both my academic peers, it was really an oddball thing for them. Like how are you how are you an ethicist and in the army at the same time? So we had a lot of talks around just war theory. <laughs> we had a lot of talks around social and political philosophy. So then I could turn it on in and say, how are you not? My military peers were like, how are you doing that thing and doing this? And so then it would turn it on. It's like, why are you not? <laughs> Having right. a lot of really important conversations, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So I was kind of tailor-made for podcast and some of the things that I do. Because this is like, how are, how are we really going to understand what we're doing and be our best selves, our best full selves in the world without thinking, okay, I'm this one thing. I'm this one military officer, and that's just what I do. It's like, no, that's just a job. You are more than that. You, you are these other things. Are there ways that you can do that? And so most of my life, especially from my beginnings and growing up poor and biracial in the South, but being racialized to be black, like it wasn't a really cool thing then. I'm not saying it is now, but I realized then that like, I'm never going to be either one. I'm never going to be black. I'm never going to be white. I'm always going to be neither but both. And I think from an early age, that kind of got me thinking, like, there are all these labels we put on ourselves where you're just that thing. But we're never just that thing. We're some other thing, too. And it really, what matters more than sort of identities and labels like that is when you really sit back and look at what matters to you, are you doing the things that you need to do to feed those priorities and to become who you want to be? So take me from that, from mm -hmm. being in the army, pursuing the PhD, to your journey into self-employment and 
in that? What was the transition point there? A really seminal book for me was Seth Godin's The Dip. Hmm. Because what it realized, what I realized when I read that in the 2006-2007 time frame was I was never going to be the best in the world officer, nor was I going to be the best in the world scholar as long as I was doing both. Right? I would be good at both. I might be great at both, but I was never going to be the best in the world. And it got me thinking, like, how, how do I want to live my life? And do I, am I really okay with being good? Or am I really okay with just being as great as, I, as great as I can be with all of these compromises and things like that? So I start with that because I know so many people start their business because they either can't find a job that's good for them or they hate the current job that they have. And so they're like, I'm going to go do my own thing. And I didn't hate either one of the things that I did. I just wanted to find a way to live life full contact and not have to, you know, hide the philosopher part of myself when I was in the guard or hide, you know, the military part of myself when I was a philosopher. That didn't seem like a good way. And I was like, I'm really, you know, the reason I'm a social and political philosopher and ethicist is because it's really about creating conditions that enable people to thrive. That means individually, that means socially, that means culturally. How do we in advance thriving? And so I had to look at myself and say, like, am I going to be able with maintaining both of these careers to thrive in a way that really resonates with me? And I wasn't. Was there a critical point where you, re was that like a, a fade in or was that like a bang? <laughs> it was, it was a hard truth, um, but then more of a fade in. Because what had ended up happening is, much to my surprise, the work that I was doing in what's now Productive Flourishing started taking off. And that's where I was doing that synthesis that I mentioned earlier. I was like, wait a second, I can be both here, right? I don't have to decide whether I'm going to be a philosopher or whether I'm going to be an army officer or how I'm going to show up. I can just show up and do what I do. And it became the best available option right, of the great options I had in front of me. And so I was like, it seems to make sense. And most of my life has been trading up anyways, right? So I'm like, I've got this new way that I can trade up and live this way. And it so turned out that it was an entrepreneurial pathway, so on and so forth. And I've maintained from that day to even now, like if a better position shows up for me, I'm not going to be like, I'm an entrepreneur, I can't do that thing. I'm like, that's the better option, take the better option and trade up. I just haven't found a better option yet, right? Haven't created that for myself and no one's offered it to me. So in the meantime, I'm going to play the hand, the best hand I've got available. And um, this was sort of a historian of, of entrepreneurship in a way, right? To, the mid-2000s were a really interesting time to be starting what's essentially an online business because it was still so new then, right? We were still having conversations about, like I remember Copyblogger having conversations about like whether it was cool to sell a PDF or not, right? Yeah. Or whether, like how we exchange this expertise that we have via content into like stuff that pays mortgages. We were sort of figuring that out at the time. They were more, much more advanced than me, but I was still like, you know, really early in that process. And so everything we've learned from like the four hour work week and all those types of things that are now common, were not common then. <laughs> it's easy to forget that. Yeah. That, that the things that seem so abundant now have not always been so. Yeah. I mean, you didn't just like start a blog and start a business. That wasn't like a thing that, that a lot of people did. It is now, right? Or it might not be a blog, it could be a podcast, videocast, whatever, right? But there's that sort of thing like, oh, I can just start an online business. Not so much then. Hmm. 
I feel really fortunate to come in at that time. Because to be honest, like if I came in now, I don't know that I would do it. Um, it's much harder now. It's much. It's a different game now than when I started. Um, but at the time, it was the best available option. It was really interesting. It was the way I described it to my philosophical buddies. It was like it is the toughest puzzle that you can only crack by living. Right? You can't think about it. You can't just ideate about it. You can't read the books about it. You have to live it to crack that nut. And so I was just tired of, you know, well, there was one pivotal moment in academia where we were, I was in a metalogic class. And so metalogic is thinking and philosophizing about logic, which is already nerdy. And I appreciate that definition because I would have been, I would have been asking. We were discussing the truth conditionals of, um, meta level statements. So Sherazadi tells a story in the Arabian Nights. Um, and so she's telling a story that has its own sort of truth conditionals. There's Sherazadi telling that story. And then there's, there's us telling the story about Sherazadi, right? So multiple level sort of realities or fictions. And I completely understood what was going on in the conversation. I just didn't care. Right. And so it's just like, this is what we're doing. And I had recently redeployed from Operation Iraqi Freedom. And so I had a lot of that stuff rolling around in the back of my head. I'm like, you know, there's like real stuff we can be working on right now. And this ain't it for me, right? I'm glad it's for them, but it wasn't it for me. And so that was one of those moments I was like, oh, the next 30, 40 years of my life are going to be in conversations like this with people like this. And I like the people, but that's not what I was there to do anymore. And so I was like, hmm, I, I don't want to be in a position to where the things I care about are a side project or something that I have to sort of sneak into all the other work that I'm doing. Like, how about I make my life about the things I care about and find a more direct route to do that? Um, and it turns out that there were other ways at the time for me that, that were open, so I took that route. And so um, a similar sort of moment happened because, you know, because I was in the National Guard, and I won't go deep into sort of the politics, but when you switch states, as an officer, you kind of start at the bottom, and I was a captain at the time. And captain and major in the Army is a very pivotal rank. Um, it gets super competitive. And so I knew that when I moved from Nebraska to Oregon, that I would be placed at the bottom of the promotion tier until I proved myself again. And that might take two or three years. And it just was this interesting inflection point to where productive flourishing was taking off and it needed more of my time. And it was a a more complete way for me to show up. Academia, I was like, I don't know if I can be in these conversations for the rest of my life, (laughs) right? Um, And then with the guard, I was like, I don't know that I want to spend the next three to four years of my life replaying my capabilities to be eligible for that next rank. Like I'm kind of done playing that game too. Um, And so, you know, it was one of those things where it's just that moment in time where it made sense to just focus all my eggs on productive flourishing and give it the full go. And I loved it. Right. And so there are days where I still miss being a philosopher and a, a academic philosopher. And there are days I still miss being a soldier. Um, and most days I love doing what I'm doing now. Wow. That's great perspective. That's yeah. great, great perspective there. It seems like you've been able to build in a lot of the 
structure and philosophy and questioning to really do what you do and help people along the way. Yeah. Yeah. So now with Productive Flourishing, what are you up to? Productive Flourishing has a lot of different elements to it. Um, I do about a third of my time in coaching and consulting in different ways. So I work with individual small business owners. A interesting mix in my work is that I work with a lot of two-party um, owners. So a husband and wife team or a you know two people decide to come together and run a business um, because there are different dynamics that happen in those sort of scenarios. Um, but I do executive coaching as well. And so this is with, you know, what you might think of as an executive coach where you're working with leaders of a larger organization and dealing with the team dynamics and dealing with larger strategic issues and things like that. So super strange because in the same day, I might be having a conversation with someone about starting a new product, right? And getting a new product off the ground. And we might be talking about numbers in the range of thirty dollars to $50,000 a year. Meeting later, I'm talking to an executive about negotiating a $2 billion deal, right? <laughs> Um, and so the contexts are really funny, but when you look at what they're thinking about, largely the same things. Wow. Right? You just add or subtract a number of zeros and add or subtract a number of players, right? Uh, but it's still largely the same dynamics. And I really enjoy that work. And um, largely what I do is strategy execution, which is helping people go from that sort of rough idea stage to creating a realistic plan and timeline for actually getting it done. And then prioritizing the work that it takes to stick to the plan or adjust a plan as opposed to just jump to something new that's bright and shiny. Um, so I do a good bit of that. Um, I also do a good bit of speaking and podcasting and things like that. And then the third is I, I do a lot of writing, which I love, right? That's I love all of it in different ways. And there have been stages of productive flourishing where I'm like, I'm, you know what? I'm just going to do the one thing. I'm just going to be the writer and then I hate it. Um, or I'm just going to do the coaching thing and then I hate it, right? Or then I'm on the road and I'm doing a bunch of speaking and then I hate it. And so for me, it's the variety that is both part of what drives me crazy, but it's also what keeps me in it in a way, right? Um, and so it's, it's one of those lessons I've had to learn so many times the hard way. It's just like, you know, going from a conversation like this and then it's kicking in the back, kicking off in the back. And then I'm having a coaching client, you know, and we're talking about things that are similar. And then the next morning I sit down to write. Like that's what makes the writing happen. I really, really wish sometimes that I was one of those visionary creative writers that like, this is what I've got to write about. And I've got this brand new thing that I want to put out there in the world, but it's not. I'm, I'm, I'm an adaptive writer in the sense where it's like, there's this thing that happened, this conversation that I've been in that's made me think about this thing that now I want to write about that thing, right? Um, and whether it's a process of documenting how I solve the problem, as it were, or documenting like, hey, Anthony, that thing you're going through, you're not by yourself. Like someone else is struggling with that. Amen. Yeah. And here's a way that you might want to work through that, right? And so I learned this from Chris Brogan, though I know not where, that it's, you know, never solve public problems in private. And so whenever I'm like typing that email, when I'm like, hey, Anthony, here's what's going on and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, that should be a blog post or that should be a podcast because Anthony's not the only one with that problem. That's a public problem. I need to get after making a public solution, right? And so that's what drives so much of my work. And I just find it, I find it really gratifying because when I look at some of the challenges I had as an academic philosopher, especially, it was like, what is this? like logical hole that I need to create for myself and go jump in so I can build my career about that, right? 
And I know there are different ways of getting it. And that's where I was at the time. Like I would be so much smarter about it now than I was then. 10 years of writing, we'll give that to you. We'll, we'll make you smarter. <laughs> but for now, it's like, there's never that moment where I'm like, I don't have anything to write about. And I don't have the purpose underneath that writing. It's just like one of those things. Like it's the morning writing happens. If I'm not on internet, I'm not on email, and I'm not distracted by other things. Well, we're definitely going to want to dig into some yeah. of that too around the, ha the habits of writing, uh, writing this, this book that's coming out here soon. Um, I love talking about those kinds of things. But first, I also have to say that uh, the, the experience of, um, well, we're both here this weekend mm -hmm. to do workshops and things at the Everything Conference, which is a conference for mm -hmm. multi-passionate people and who like to do lots of different things. And for me, I've, I've gone through a funny similar balance where if I'm doing one thing, like it's not going to last long. If I'm doing 10 things, I'm going to not finish a lot of them. And so in my career, it's been a very funny kind of narrowing, mm -hmm. but also keeping a few things going, learning to not jump to the shiny new thing when I already have three things going, yeah. but keeping those three things going so that they have reflective properties. It's, a, it's been a funny uh, balance around making that all work and keeping engaged. And, and so that's why Break the Twitch, I think, became minimalism habits and creativity. I think it could have just been like... <laughs> probably just minimalism around removing distractions, but you know, there's just feels like there's so much more to the daily experience around how we do this stuff. So yeah, anyway. well, and, it, and it's also like minimalism for what, right? If we're just going to talk about minimalism and habits, which I'm all about those conversations, I'm always going to ask the question, but what's the point, right? What are we making space for? And that's where you start thinking about creativity. You start thinking about what it means to be human, which one of the things means being creative and we're all creative, not necessarily black, black beret creative, you know, but we're all sort of wired to solve problems and that's how we've evolved to be who we are. And so I can definitely see why you would have to add because, you know, minimalism and habits, they don't have the teleology. They don't have the purpose behind it. They have, they're all process, but process towards what? Yes, precisely. Yeah, I love that. That's exactly that's exactly it. You you maybe said it better than than I could. So that is fantastic. So let's talk about that a little bit here. The project side of things here. This is I know one of your specialties. And so I'd love to go a little deeper on how do we get people starting things and finishing things? And what does it mean exactly to finish things? Let's start with the landscape of like what's pretty common for all of us, right? Because I think too many of us think that our own problems are unique to us and or that we're uniquely defective. It, that, right. that one. <laughs> <laughs> and so I think a great starting point is that um, almost all of us are overloaded to start with. We've talked right. about a little bit about minimalism. So sort of what I do is working in the cognitive minimalist space, mm. right? When I look at how much mental clutter and how much emotional clutter we piled upon ourselves such that we can't think and we try to maneuver around the tight spaces of our mind just because it's so full, right? And so everyone's like, why am I so busy? Everybody's so busy right now, right? We're funny creatures in how we label things. My experience working with thousands of folks is that we quantify and measure economic work, but then we leave the work of our lives kind of out there. We don't think about it in the same way. Specific example here. I've never seen someone's daily calendar or daily plan that includes when they're going to go to the bathroom. Hmm. Right? Yeah. 
But we know, depending upon your biology, that there's 30 minutes to two hours a day somewhere where you're going to be in the bathroom. Yeah. And it's going to happen, right? One hopes. And uh, the only reason I bring that out is that like that's 30 minutes to two hours of your day that you're not accounting for. And then we do things like fall into social media and fall into email and things like that. And those things don't necessarily get quantified and measured. But we look at our economic work, the work we do that pays bills. And we say that, you know, that's where our time goes. So we look at nine to five and we know it's folly. But we still think we have eight hours of free time to work on something. You don't, right? You have, you know, at best two hours to work on something um, above and beyond what you're already committed to between the meetings, between the commutes, between the emails, between the random coffee table, you know, coffee, um, coffee room conversations. Like you don't have nearly as much space as you think we have, right? And I think there's this continual problem that we don't start from the position of we're already overloaded. What are we going to do about it? We start from the position of I've got all the damn time in the world to say yes to this new thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'll, I'll hang out here just a little bit more because, and I learned this from Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, right? And it was an article. I wish I had to link to it anymore. Um, but um, what he said was like, if you look at your schedule today, this is a paraphrase. Look at your schedule today. Unless you make substantial changes, two weeks from today, your schedule's going to look the same, hmm. right? Because if you look two weeks ago, probably looks the same as today. And so I started thinking about that. But you know, I was like, why do we do that? And we take some point in the future, like three weeks or three months, and we're like, that random Monday, three weeks from now or three three months from now, like it doesn't have anything in it, right? It's fully open, so I could put all my stuff there. Right. Just keep roll, rolling that forward. Just roll that forward. Except for when we wake up that Monday morning, we realize there's a commute, there are the errands, there are the chores, there are the meetings, there are everything that's already been piled upon there. And that 16 hours, because I'm terrible at estimating, that 16 hours that I'm bunted, punted into this Monday, I now have to try to figure out how I'm going to get done in two days, or excuse me, in two hours. And that's a really frustrating position to be in. Now, I'm speaking, like I'm drawing it all out because it's absurd when we talk about it this way, right? When we, whenever you pull out all the stuff and you, and you say, this is what we do, it always looks absurd. And it's what we do, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so that's where I want people's starting point to be. Like, if you're listening to a conversation like this, you're probably overloaded already. So what are you going to do about that? <laughs> One thing is that you can go on a project diet, right? Where it's just like no new projects until I finish drop, delegate, or defer the ones that have half. What were those? You just said those, that was a great list. Drop, you defer, you delegate, or you do. Right? The four Ds. Um, and so, until you do one of those four things, your project load is not going to change. Right? And tomorrow, you're going to work up in the same problem you've got today. Too many, pro- too many projects, too many ideas, not enough time. So, two, realize that we don't do ideas. We do projects. Hmm. Seems simple, but when we think of how many times we latch on to an idea and then get frustrated because we're not doing anything with that idea, we don't know what to do with the idea. Well, you're not going to do anything with the idea. The only way you're going to do that idea is if you convert it into a project. And you know, if you really want to do a project, that project has to live somewhere on your schedule. If you don't have space in your schedule, you're not going to do the project. You're not going to do the idea. Right. Right. 
And there's a lot of freedom for us creative folks there because like every idea you run across, you don't have to commit to anything. It's an idea. It's inert, right? It's like the air you're breathing. You don't have to do anything. When you commit to a project though, I want people to start committing to finishing projects, not just doing stuff, not just working on ideas. And that's where it can get super challenging for us because as creative people, our reach will always exceed our grasp. We'll always be trying more than we'll ever be able to do. And knowing that sort of human flaw, the best that we can do is try to commit to fewer things because we know that naturally we're going to overreach. So we pull it down to a place where we can actually start to get some things done. I mentioned earlier that I want us to sort of pay attention to our personal work as much as our economic work. And in my language, anything that takes time, energy, and attention is a project. Anything that takes time, energy, and attention is a project. Taking out the trash, project, right? Cleaning out the closet of doom that you're not getting to, project. Um, Flying to Portland to um, teach at the Everything Conference, that's a project. Everything's a project. And when you realize that, a lot of people are like, wait a second, I've got a lot of projects going on right now. Yes, you do. And, um... Once you accept that, I think it helps to create some space of possibility because when you have that story that you're uniquely defective and you're like continually wired to not be able to get your shit together or you're always behind or you're not a planner or you're not a finisher, you probably actually are a finisher in some different things. You're just not finishing the things that you're counting. And that's super frustrating. That's how we get to the end of a week where we look at our to-do list and we're like, I, I seem to have gotten a lot done. I've, I've done all the things, but I'm not, I didn't do the thing. <laughs> yes, you worked on other projects. Prioritize differently, right? And create that room or, or accept that the things that you're working on actually do tie into priorities and values that matter to you. And I'm going to pause here because so many people who are creative get caught up on some sort of pipe dream that they need to create a business out of that. And then if they're not doing that, they're somehow less than as a creative or they're somehow less than as something, right? Because if they were really that person, they can go start a business. They can go like sell their stuff on Etsy or whatever. But they're like, but I have to have the job. I have to have the health insurance. I have to have all those sort of things. Really what I want to open the space for is to say, you know what? That job, that security that health insurance ties into something that really matters to you. And that's okay. It matters to you more than this chimera of the entrepreneurial lifestyle that you see on Instagram and things like that, right? You are not less than because you are keeping food on the table for your family, because you are, you know, being that secretary at church while you're doing that, because you're doing all these things. You're not less than. That's how you're prioritizing. If you want that sort of thing, then maybe it's time to start thinking about which of the priorities you're going to negotiate with and what you're going to change. And if you decide that you don't want to change because you actually are living in accord with your principles and values, let the noise go, right? Stop buying the courses. Stop buying into it because you're not going to do that. Because I come from, like I very much follow Gandhi's statement, like action expresses priorities. In the end, you're going to express some sort of priorities. Now, sometimes what happens is we have priorities around comfort or we have priorities around things and we don't realize that. 
right? But until you change that priority, for instance, say around comfort, that might be why you're not taking that leap to entrepreneurship or doing your creative thing because you want to be comfortable and safe and that's a priority to you now. If you change that priority, maybe the perfectionism will fall away. Maybe the procrastinism might fall away just enough for you to start doing it. So here's the thing about your best work that I think we don't really lean into enough is that the more it matters to you, the more you'll thrash. Because think about it. None of us really have a pseudo existential crisis when it's time to take out the trash or to change the laundry or whatever. Like we just do it or we don't do it. But there's no story. There's no like, am I the right person? And is this the one way I want to use my life? Like we don't go into that. But when it comes to the work that really lights you up, the stuff that you put into a drawer or closet somewhere, it does cause that little am I the right person? Is this the right time? And is for real? Is, am I doing this? So, and I wanted to draw that up because I think we've absorbed some head trash from our society that like, if it's meant to be, it would be easy. It'd, it'd be flowful. And so anytime we encounter something that's difficult and that we don't have the native talent from the beginning, we're like, oh, it must not be my thing. Like if it were my thing, it would be easy to do. And it's such BS. Because one is piggybacking on this really pernicious myth of talent that we have that like we're natively good at something. Some people are creative and there are others are not. And if you don't have this creative talent, then that's okay. There's other things you can do, but that ain't it. When the reality is we become talented by doing the, the work, by doing the projects, by training, by exercise, by practice. And unfortunately, too many people will encounter some of this courageous work some of this work that only they can do, some of this work that will literally change their life and change the lives of the people around them. And when it gets hard, they're like, Ugh, maybe it's not my thing. Maybe this thrashing I'm doing, this thrashing is the meta work, the emotional flailing, the quote unquote research that you do when you get stuck, right? The, all of that parasitic motion that isn't pushing the project forward, that's thrashing. And it's not that thrashing is bad, it's a part of the process. But we also know it's not it's not the star of the show. Um, I just wanted to make it clear that like when you do this really courageous best work, you're going to thrash. There's nothing wrong with you. Doesn't mean that it's a sign that you're doing the wrong thing. In fact, it might be a sign that you're doing the right thing, and that maybe it's time to run towards that dragon, then run away from it when it gets hard. Totally, yeah. We don't thrash taking out the garbage, you know, or the day to day little things. Like it's only, we only feel that when there's substantial importance around it. Yeah. Yeah. When we have something to lose, when we have our identities on the line, when we have something that, that truly matters to us, it's kind of like we don't envy things we don't want. We don't envy people who are doing things we don't want or who have things we don't want. We only envy people when they are doing the things or when they have the things that we want. So envy is a really useful tool in that same way. Because whenever you feel that sting, that, that hot-headed, just that, that sort of self-righteous, like, why don't I have it? Well, that means that there's something about what's going on with that other person that actually really matters to you. It's not about them. It's about you and what you are or are not doing. Mm. So that can be a, we can take that negative emotion and turn it into a discovery tool. Exactly. Perhaps. Like what matters here? Right? Why am I so? Um, because of because I know myself pretty well, I know whenever I get especially obsessive about someone else's behavior, 
I know there's something in there that either I've done or I'm doing, or there's something in there about my own story that um, I need to focus on. So I'm like, why am I so mad at such and such? Or why do I feel so frustrated with what they're doing? It's not so much about them. It's like, what is it about this situation that is causing this emotion in me? And what does that have to teach me? Am I out of alignment somewhere? Am I um, not focusing on something that matters? Um, am I hungry? That's a big one. <laughs> That's a big one. Am I hungry or thirsty? <laughs> like sometimes it's just that. And you're like, okay, I'm hungry or thirsty. I really don't care about that. And that's been really helpful for me when, you know, I see people living their great digital lives online. And then I think about them like, do I actually want that? No, I don't. Because if I wanted it, one, I'd be doing it. But two, I've done it or it's not in alignment with my value. So all this obsessive about their great life and they're doing whatever they're doing is like, that's not the life I want to live. Stop paying attention to it or at least let the emotion go. Yeah, you bring up a, a great point. There's often a very romanticized perspective, especially like you said, through Instagram, the laptop, hashtag laptop lifestyle and working from a new country today and, mm -hmm. and, and just with entrepreneurship in general. And, and I will admit in my early entrepreneurial phases, I, I had a headlight company at one point and like, well, you know, different things. I was also in my early twenties mm -hmm. and I had a very rosy perspective of taking a massive leap and, and, trying to go all in on this thing because that's what you're supposed to do. And and as I have progressed, as I have gotten into now my early 30s, maybe mid-30s now, <laughs> I have very much changed the dialogue that I have with people when they say, like, how do you do this? And should I just quit my job and go for it? Or, you know, there's that conversation around values. There's this conversation around the projects, what projects do you have going and what are the aspects that you value around that? And maybe just like side hustle for a bit, play with some things and there might be a point when it becomes abundantly clear that it's ready for the prime time. But now just quit your job, man. Just, oh boy. Oh, it gives me. I'm in a tense place with this, right? Because I don't want to feed someone's head trash that maybe they just keep the day job. Right. Because there's a way in which we tell ourselves that story that we do realize that like we're just not being as courageous as we could be. And that, you know, that's the safe play. And so I don't necessarily want to feed that head trash. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. At the same time that I don't want to feed the head trash that like if you're not jumping ship, that you're less than. So there's that tended balance. And this really comes down to what matters to you. And I think Austin Cleon in his latest book, um, Keep Going, um, when I read it, I was like, man, I wish I'd said that to Austin. But so many things about Austin, I say that. But he was like, you know, maybe we should stop telling people, like, when they show us their creative work, that they should commercialize it. You know, because that's what you do. In his example, it's like you bake the cake or you do the art. People are like, you should start an Etsy store. You should start a shop. Oh, you're amazing. Yeah, yeah you're amazing. <laughs> you're amazing. So you should start a business. No, maybe just be amazing. Maybe your best work is creating this art and you, we don't create an economic container around it. Because that keeps it where it needs to be for you. And there's nothing wrong with that. Because that's how you may be able to keep the day job and do your work without getting in this sort of thing like, what happens if I put my art up and it takes off? Or what if I don't want to run a business? Don't friggin' run a business. Make your art. Share it with the world. And understand that that's a choice that you've made. Because other things matter more to you. And to your point... I work with a lot of folks that, you know, are digital nomads and 
hashtag lifestyle, laptop lifestyle and things like that. And underneath all of that is sometimes a sense of loneliness, sometimes a sense of lack of purpose, sometimes a sense of lack of community, like which can be different than loneliness, right? And you know, we're not able to talk about that. Sometimes there's burnout because tell you what, like deciding where you're going to go every three days, it can wear you out, right? There's can be that frustration that people that stayed home and did the work are actually lapping them because they're not figuring out where they're going to go every three days. So keep in mind that anytime you see something on social media or any media, you're looking at a curated experience, right? You're looking at the best versions of someone's story that they want you to see, right? You're not looking, seeing the worst parts because most of us don't show up with our dirty laundry and say, I'm depressed as hell today and I don't know what to do about it. And I'm really rethinking my life choices. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So I'm just saying, when you see that sort of stuff, realize that that's what you're seeing and understanding that, um, and this is, you know, I said this in my first book, but like we get this sort of thing where it's like, we always see that the grass is greener on the other side, but forget that we still got to mow it. <laughs> right? So uh, there's still something over. There's work people are having to do to maintain that. And so the question becomes, this, this is a bit of an aside, but there's a flaw in our decision-making apparatus and where we look at the new thing and we look at all of our, we, we tend to look at either all of the current bad things in our life and look at the great things in that new choice. And we're comparing the great things versus the bad things of our current life, or we flip it. We look at all the great things and look at the, the terrible things. What we really should do is look at the great things of both and then look at the terrible things of both and decide holistically which one is a better option for us. But because we split that and we don't have assumption parity, we end up in a situation where like, I'm going to jump where the grass is greener and you're like, man, there's still a lot of work here. Well, no, no crap, right? There's a work no matter what you do, right? And then you're like, maybe I was better off there. Well, yeah. And so, you know, when we're making these big life choices or when we're thinking about doing this type of project or this type of work, it's really want people to think about the upsides of both and the downsides of both and realize that your current option has downsides and it has upsides, right? It doesn't get a free ticket right. <laughs> onto the decision train. <laughs> Right. And I think that helps us make better decisions about whether to leap or whether to stay because we can leap into it, you know, eyes wide open. If you talk to the entrepreneurs and you're like, you know what, two days out of my week, I'm selling my butt off and trying to figure out how cash flow is going to work. And I don't like that. When you jump and you two days of your week are selling stuff and figuring out how you're going to make cash flow work, it's not like no one told me or it's not like, what did I get myself into? Like you, you knew that before you dumped into it. And I think it can pull down that head trash and that noise. Like, why am I broken? Why is this so hard for me? It's hard for everyone, right? How are you going to respond to the situation at hand? What is head trash? You've mentioned yeah. a couple. So head trash is just that amalgam of self-defeating stories, cultural myths, um, just the mental garbage that we consume from our society and carry with us, right? That ends up creating these narratives in our head, these stories in our head that regardless of whether they're true, they still work on us, right? So it could be the head trash of like the story you um, ended up with after your third grade teacher told you you weren't good at something, right? It could be the story you told yourself after you had that job that didn't work out, right? Um, a lot of times it's family of origin stuff, like you're not the creative one, 
right? You're, you know, you're the, you're the math one. And so all of a sudden, anytime you want to start doing something creative, you're like, I'm not the creative one. My brother's the creative one, right? And so it's just that amalgam of just crap and bullshit and demons that we carry with us. And everyone has it. That's what I want people to know. Like I've interviewed and talked with some really, really high achievers. They've got head trash too, right? And the frustrating thing, the super frustrating thing about it is it doesn't have to be true for it to work on you. Just you're believing it and having to deal with it makes it do the work on you. And it does get useful at a certain point when you can hear that head trash, you can feel it, you can, yeah, that voice in your head of just saying like, you know, that's there, but it's not true. It's not me. I don't believe it. It's just coming up. So I mentioned earlier about chattering monkeys and, and things, because that, that's how I describe it sometimes. Like I'm sitting there writing or thinking, and I'm like, this chattering monkey is like, that's dumb. What are you doing? Like, do it this way. Bah, 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 bah. In the back of my head, I'm just like, chattering monkeys, like you're just part of the ride, <laughs> but you don't get to determine where we go. Right. And so that's just what head trash is. And we all have it. It's just whether we're one. So it gets extra matter here. Then we will get to the point where we start telling ourselves bad stories about the head trash that we're carrying. It's not just that we have the head trash. We have a story about the head trash and why, like, if I were smarter, if I were braver, if I were blah, 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 then I wouldn't be fighting these damn demons. So matter. So it's like, think of a Venn diagram. Venn diagram is when you see those those big circles and they have the little circles in them. It's, a, it's, a, it's an overlap thing. So the big diagram is, or the big circle is the total amount of energy it takes to do something. That's the big circle. A much, much smaller circle that's completely in that bigger circle is the amount of actual work it takes to do something. All that space in between is just our head trash and the story and the dread. Like, you know, it's, it's some of those things. I, I also joke about the joke, but also not joke about the dread to work ratio, where there are some tasks where it will take us three damn minutes to do it. But the amount of dread we have about that task, like we'll avoid that three minute task for three weeks. We dread it so much. The dread to work ratio is so out of whack. And what we forget sometimes is that all that dreading and all that procrastination and all that delaying, that's work that we're doing. What if we just did the work? Energy being burnt. It's energy being burnt. It's parasitic you know, work and that it's just draining energy from you, but actually not helping you. And so you know, maybe jump on some of those things you hate. Like I've got things I don't want to do. We all have things. And you, the best work, the things that are amazing and beautiful about your life will have some version of work you don't want to do, right? Um, I say it half jokingly, but like babies got butts to be wiped, right? It's not something we love, but it's a part of this beautiful process of raising children, right? There's always a butt to wipe somewhere, right? Just wipe it sooner. So as you said, everything is a project, whether taking out the trash or building something new. How many projects realistically can we have then? Let me start it by this way. I'm going to say five, but here's how I'm going to get to five. When we look at what people actually do, and we start talking about this life-changing, soul-nourishing um, stuff that we put in a closet somewhere, right? Or stuff that's making careers for us. It tends to be that most people can't do more than about five of those projects in any given time perspective. Now, I got to talk about the time perspective thing because this is where we get our ourselves tied up in knots. Um, when I say five projects, I mean like five week size projects or five month size projects or five quarter size projects. 
And obviously we would want our quarter size project around, say, growing our podcast to have month size projects that actually make that goal happen, mm -hmm. right? So there's this amount of chunking and containment that we need to really be thinking about. Otherwise, we end up doing 17 different projects that it's not clear how they're driving us towards the fewer number of goals that we can actually pursue. And so the long nerdy way of saying it that only I'm going to say it is no more than five active projects per time perspective. Key word there is, or key phrase there is no more than. Doesn't mean you have to have five, right? And remember, kind of as we talked, like anything that takes time, energy, and attention is a project. So be thinking about your life projects as well. Like if you're getting married, that's a project. If you're getting the kid out of the house, that's a project. If you're getting your kid from summertime flow to school flow, all parents know that's a project, right? Um, but we don't count them that way. And so like, you know, we happen to be recording this in, August, in September. It used to be August, now September. Um, and so it's kind of in the rear view, but I was talking to so many parents that were looking at their, their project deck and it was all the economic projects. And on the other side of their mouth, they're like, but how am I going to get my kids? I got to do the thing and I got to go to shopping and I got to enroll them there. And this is what's going on. And I'm like, why, why is that not a project? Because we know at the end of the day, you're going to get your kids in school. It's just whether it's going to be crazy making for you or not, and whether you're going to do that the hard way, right? An easier way might be to say, you know what, I'm going to prioritize fewer things. Um, and I want to be careful here. Let's talk about the difference between load and throughput. Load and throughput. Most of us, when we're not being intentional about the number of active projects we're, we're carrying, we're carrying 17 different projects the emotional weight of them, the mental weight of them, the coordinative weight on them. We're just carrying them, but we're not actually actively pushing them forward. And we're getting three to five done. So it turns out that 12 of those, at least 12 of those are just extra weight, right? It's just like you're carrying around this backpack full of stuff you're never going to use. And you wonder why it's so damn heavy. How about you carry what you need, right? And when you no longer need that thing, you trade it out. And so that's where when we go back to the four days I mentioned earlier, that's how you can keep that backpack lower, like that load lower, because if it turns out you're not going to do more than five anyways, why commit to more than five, right? The rest is just a tool you're going to use to beat yourself up with. And so to really get specific, or really as a suggestion, I'm going to say here is think about three economic projects per time slice and two personal projects per time slice. And so remember, um, things like going to the gym and hiring a personal trainer and getting an exercise regimen started again, that's a project. What time scale would you put that at? So it depends on your level of fitness, obviously, right? So what's a time, what might be a week size project for me might be a different thing for you. But I think people know intuitively the difference between a week size project and a month size project for them. Sure. Now avoid the comparisitis and don't be like, well, Anthony can do this in a week and it takes me a month. Well, don't worry about that. Anthony's done different things to do that. And you don't know what else Anthony is doing, right? Um, and so I'll give a very specific example here that may work for people. Like for me, because I've been writing for so long, I don't necessarily need to count writing a blog post as a week size project, hmm. right? Something I kind of do, I wake up in the morning, I've got a lot of structures around that. If you're a new blogger, count it as a weekly project. Because think about it. Are you going to write more than five a week? Are you going to write more than three a week? Most people don't, right? Um, and so when you really start to chunk it down that way, you're like, oh, 
if I'm wanting to grow my blog or wanting to grow my podcast, maybe when I'm learning, recording one podcast is a weak size project because you don't know what you're doing. You don't have the tools set up. You don't have the habits. You don't have the structures. And it's not that you're defective. It's just that you got to build those things. You got to build those competencies. When you become seasoned and experienced about that, maybe it's just a daily thing. You just show up and record the thing. It happens on its own. You give it to whoever you need to. You built that team to make it happen. But in the beginning, it's probably a bigger project than you think it is. Going to the fitness example, like if you've been out of shape for five or 10 years, um, you're probably looking at a quarter size project, right? To actively get your butt in the gym, to actively make it like something that you don't hate every time you go there, to actually see some of the, the results that you want to see. Like there are a lot of people who will sell you like weight loss super quickly, but if you've ever tried it and you haven't worked out, you notice that it doesn't work so well, right? So that's going to be something like a quarter size project, right? That might tie into a year size project of losing 20 pounds, right? Um, is it possible for you to lose 20 pounds in three months? Of course it's possible. How much are you going to prioritize that? I'll give a specific example here. And I, I use fitness because uh, back in April, I needed to lose quite a bit of weight because I picked it up from writing the book and you know, medical thing that I had last year. And so I was walking around with 20 extra pounds and I was like, I don't like that. It doesn't feel good. It's not who I am. It's time to prioritize that. And that's what I told myself last year, right? Is that like the, the finishing the book, doing everything I'm doing now and getting through this health thing, that's the priority. That's, those are the projects that I'm working on. I can't do much more than that. That means I'm going to blow, I'm going to blow up a little bit. I knew that was going to happen. Um, but then it's March, you know, and I'm looking like I'm still blowing up and I haven't prioritized it. So now it's time to make it a project, you know, join the gym. I know because of where I am right now, I do so many things collaboratively that trying to do it by myself was just folly. And there's a lot of head trash there because I have that military experience you mentioned. I can be really disciplined about some things. I know what I'm doing. I've been working out since I was a teenager, right? It's not like a knowledge gap. It's just a get my butt in a gym gap. And so I had to go through the head trash of like hiring a trainer and doing all that kind of whatnot. But, you know, uh, from April to May, I lost about 20 pounds, right? Super quick. Um, and it's managed to stay off, which is also nice. Um, but it's because I made it a project. It's because I was like, you know what? I work best in the morning. However, if I'm going to take this seriously, when I look at where I have space in my schedule to put training, it's in the morning. So I didn't do as much writing during that period of time. I didn't do as much sort of economic stuff during that period of time because I needed to start that habit and I needed to get back in the gym to reach the goal. And so it's like it was more important to me at that time to do that. Now, as I started getting some progress, as I started changing, you know, changing my life and then that much weight, I'm just going to speak to that, that that's a lifestyle change. That's not just a, I make a few habit tweaks here. Like it's changing diet, it's changing your schedule, pretty much counted as a lifestyle change. I knew that lifestyle changes don't happen quickly and they don't stick quickly. So after about a quarter, I was like, okay, I'm in the groove here. Now I can start putting this at a time that's easier for me, right? And more convenient for me. And also I got some other I got some other work that I need to do because I'm going to book launch right now. Sure. So I couldn't give up my mornings at that time, but I knew during that period that I could and developed a habit, do what I needed to do, and then flip it out um, in that way. But again, if you're not if it's not on your schedule, it's not a priority. And Unfortunately, what we do when it comes to our life projects is we try to make it find the open space in between our economic work, 
right? Instead of doing things like saying, you know what, next week, I'm just going to stay on the workout train here. Next week, I'm going to work out Monday, Wednesday, Friday at nine o'clock in the morning. Everything else has to work itself around that. We look at it the otherwise and we look at our schedule and like, ooh, well, I think I can put it there and then I think I can put it there and then I think I can put it there. And inevitably, you're not counting for the bathroom breaks. <laughs> you're not counting for the bathroom breaks. You're not counting for the meeting going over. You're not counting for the fact that last night you forgot to get ready for the gym and it's going to take you 10 minutes to get all the right clothes. And then that random, this is this is one of those random things, but I've seen it happen. Like we think, okay, I need to leave at 1.30. This happened to me earlier today. Right. I need to leave at 1.30 so I could stop working at 1.29 and then leave at 1.30. There's that 10, 15 minutes of just like running around the house and talking to partners and figuring out what you're going to do that's there every damn time. Right. And it's on the flip side too. You come home, there's that sort of you put the keys in the thing, you do the thing. There's 10 to 15 minutes on the backside of every time I leave the house. I know this. And yet I still tell myself that stupid story that I can leave at 129 or I can start leaving at 129 and be out of the house at 130. And you know, that's how you end up gasping from meeting to meeting and deciding that crap, I missed, I can't be at the training thing that I wanted to be at at this time, or I can't make it to the gym and back in time. Screw it. I'm not going to go. How many days you got to tell yourself that before you look at a year or a quarter or a decade where you're like, I haven't, <laughs> haven't figured that out. So Five projects, life projects count as a project. Um, so I have a teammate who's currently getting married right now. Well, not right right now, but she's her wedding is this week. And, you know, it's a project for her, right? There's things she can't do with that. So um, five total, no more than five total per time perspective. Um, the one thing else I'll talk about with the five projects rule is that it becomes super helpful to triage any given time slice right? Any given time perspective. Because if you know that you can only do five things this week, right? Five of those best work projects this week or five of the things that matter most this week, you can choose in advance which ones you're going to pursue and which ones you're not. And you can start to find a place somewhere else because you're going to have five projects next week if you finish what you did this week, right? But when you don't have that sort of internal discipline, and I know we creatives don't like the D word, right? It's you don't see that there's a place to put that idea, that there's a place to put that project. So everything has to be about right now, today. And then you're that hummingbird that's sort of going from flower to flower to flower to flower to flower. And you spend your head your days just in that circle. It's great for hummingbirds, not so great for humans. It sounds like a little bit to me the different time scale is like big goal, get healthy. Smaller time scale, gym membership and signing up for this 30-day class, and then even smaller time scale, what's the tiny action like putting my shoes at the front door and packing my gym bag and putting it on the calendar? Yeah. Easy way to say it is whenever you're needing more purpose or context, you zoom up a level, a level of um, time perspective. So if you're like, why am I getting my shoes ready? Well, because I need to go to the gym. Well, why am I going to the gym? because I need to get healthy or because whatever reason. So whenever you need context or purpose, you zoom up. Whenever you need specificity of action, you zoom down. So if you're ever stuck with an idea or a project, and you're like, I literally don't know what to do right now. Chunk it down the next layer of time, right? And you're like, okay, I know what I need. I still don't know. It's, you know, you're thinking, I still don't know. And you sort of zoom down to a week, to a weekly level. And you're like, I still don't quite know what to do. 
go to the daily level. What can you do? Um, and this has been super helpful for people. What can you do in either 15 minutes? Like think of a task. Or what do you need to chunk for a two-hour block of time? Right? Think of one of those two quantas of time. And I because I think it's intuitive for us to think like most of us know what we can do in 15 minutes versus what we can kind of do in two hours. It's we play all sorts of games with ourselves. And it's like, well, I think I can do it in 47 minutes. No, don't. <laughs> right? Count it as two hours. If you're if you're done early, great. Right. Move to the next thing. Um, but more likely because more likely than not, because we're terrible at estimating how long things take, that 47 minutes is going to be 90 minutes, or it's going to be longer, and you've built in enough margin to do it. And so by the time you start working down to the specificity of action, like what can you do in the next 15 minutes? Now, the tricky thing becomes when we confuse clarity and certainty. So some people say, well, I'm not clear about what I need to do. But what's really going on under that is I'm not certain that this thing will get me the outcome that I want, Hmm. right? And so seeking clarity for a lot of people can end up seeking certainty because usually when people are stuck, I've got one of those like magic questions. And so I'll share it with you. Like, what's the most courageous next step you can take for that project or idea? People tend to know. It's not that they aren't clear about it. It's that they're not certain that that courageous action is going to be fruitful or is going to get them the outcome that they want to do, Mm. right? And so be careful because a lot of times when we go in research mode, we say, well, I want to get some more clarity about what I'm doing. Mm -mm. You're trying to become more certain about this type of thing. And if it truly matters to you, if it's this type of best work that I'm talking about, you're not going to be able to predict how it's going to impact your life. There's so many unknowns. There's so many variables. People are going to show up new opportunities are to come. There's just so much uncertainty. And so rather than try to give people the balm of certainty, right, by research and things, like I want people to sort of build a cabin right next to Lake Uncertainty and start swimming in it more. Love that. Right? Um, and get used to that because the more you get comfortable with uncertainty, my good friend Jonathan Fields has a great book on this called Uncertainty. The more you get comfortable with uncertainty, the more you're able to do your best work, the more you're able to be courageous, the more you're able to do that. But it's only when you're looking on that certainty that if I poke the box this way, this outcome will happen. And so all my research is what's the right way to poke the box as opposed to what the hell can I do today to push this forward in a way that's aligned? And also, am I willing to take this courageous next step that I probably already know what it is, but I'm scared to take it? Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, for sure. That's a that's a big one. I love the analogy of the uh, build a little house by the lake uncertainty. I love that. Um, well, speaking of courageous things, you started out writing a book about finishing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to me, that is a pretty courageous act. Yeah. Um, tell me a little bit about just how that came to be and your writing habits, the process that really drove you through that. Yeah. I have joke with people that like, if you want to be a masochist, write a memoir, a book on writing or book on productivity. (laughs) One makes you conjure up all your stories. The other like makes you think that you need to be an expert in writing. And the other is like, if you miss a deadline, which writers miss deadlines, then what does that say about your work? So I appreciate that you see that because yeah, um, maybe one of the reasons I haven't gotten into it for so long. Part of it was just frustration. So there was um, 
two weeks before I was going to market with this book idea, um, someone in our space was writing another book, right? And a friend told me like, hey, have you seen this book that's coming out? Because he knew I was about to go to market. But it was John A. Cuff's book, Finish, right? And so I was about to go to market with Start Finishing, right? Same problem, same basic promise, different process. And this time I was like, not this time, right? Because when Deep Work came out and whenever Deep Work came out, I was in a similar perspective. I was like, man, Cal said everything. I don't need to say anything. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. It's cool. He wrote the book, except he didn't, right? Because no one can write your book. That's the thing. And so that one came in. I was like, not this time. Like, respect your work there, but I got something I got to say on this one, right? And there's been a book-shaped hole in my business for 10 years, right? Like if you go to Productive Flourishing right now, there's... 2,000 articles on getting stuff done and habits and process and all the stuff that we've been talking about. But there's no coherent journey where I'm starting with this problem and it takes you all the way through the solutions to it. And so I've known that for years. And like, I'm this is the time that I finished this sort of scenario. In the background even more, and this is, can be somewhat embarrassing, is that I still have not completed my dissertation for my PhD. So how am I going to write a book on finishing when I haven't finished the PhD? Um, and you know, I'll make a long story very short, but it just came down to the fact of realizing like, which was a bigger priority to me. Like I could write a dissertation that six people, four of whom I paid will read, right. Or I can write this book that could be really transformative for tens of thousands of people. I'm always going to choose the latter. I know that about myself. Stop beating yourself up. Do the work is right in front of you. Then if you do that, like go back and finish the other thing or pick the next best available option. But I realized when John's book came out, how frustrated I was and not at John, but at myself, right? Been doing this for 10 years. There's no, I mean, I have a lot of other lifestyle, life stuff in the background between car accidents and, you know, near death experiences and things like that. But it's like, it's time. It's just time. Sometimes, you know, it's time. And I think I've been coaching people long enough who are writers, again, another irony, where we try to force ourselves to be ready before we're ready. And yes, there is that amount of time where you're procrastinating and anything sounds better than writing. You know, then all of a sudden, I, I used to joke with Angela because when she was finishing her dissertation, I could tell how much she was procrastinating by how clean our house was <laughs> or how many cookies we had. Right. Because that was her two go-tos. All of a sudden, the house needed to be clean and she needed to make some cookies. Right. Right then. Yeah. So habits and routines to get super, super specific here. For the first four months or so, I tried to write it on my laptop at home. Did not work. Right. Um, and so I went medieval on the problem and I got an AlphaSmart Neo 2, which is a 1990s word processor. It's literally a keyboard that's got an LCD screen on it where you can have like six lines um, and total the thing can carry like 50,000 words or 100,000 words. So it can carry the whole manuscript on it, except for like, it wasn't connected. This is like really dumb tech, right? Really dumb tech. It wasn't like, I actually had to plug it into a computer to get it into all of my, all of my apps and things like that. Um, and so the environment wasn't working for me. And so I created a project budget for myself that just gave me the mental chatter of, or freed me from the mental chatter of like, do I really want to spend 10 bucks on coffee and breakfast today? And I'm like, dummy, like how much would you pay someone to write the same amount you're going to write in the same quality? How much would you pay for that? And it's like 10 X that, right? And you won't make a $10 budget for this. 
So Alpha Smart Neo, creating the project budget, creating the boundaries such that I would wake up, literally walk down to the coffee shop, right? Usually before I was fully awake, right? I was my feet were moving. Um, I would write for three or four hours and walk home. Um, it's not much harder than that, actually, right? To walk right for three or four hours and walk home. Now, in the middle of it, though, um, despite the fact that I have a few decades of writing under me, like the, the same demons come up. Like this is terrible. What? This is going nowhere. This is not going to be interesting. So on and so forth. So I knew that about myself that I would end up in that place because I've been writing long enough to know what demons are going to show up when I start writing. So I negotiated with my acquisitions editor and developmental editor. It sounds true. Um, her name is Haven Iverson. Haven is amazing. So um, I said, Haven, what I want to do is on the second Wednesday of every month, I want to send you whatever I've written for the last month, right? Whatever it is, you get it. Because I know myself well enough that like, especially after I thought about the fact that like, I got a really nice advance for this. Like someone has paid me to do a job. Mm-hmm. I would never take a job and show up and be like, you know what? Today, I didn't feel like working. I just phoned it in. You know, I was on Facebook all day, boss. I wouldn't do that. Sure. Right? And so I'm like, I'm not going to do that with these great folks that that I'm working with. And so I was like, okay, how do it? I'm not going to show up. It's just not going to happen that on the second Wednesday of the month, I'm going to say I haven't written anything this month. Right. <laughs> and just knowing that a month from now, I was going to have to write something. I'd, you know, I'd write something. What it ended up doing was making it such that about every month I turned in a chapter. Now, there, there's another hack with that in that after I submitted the first chapter or two, which are always super shaky and you, you don't know what you're doing. Um, and I do the hard thing. So quick writer tip. Unless you're really good at intros, don't start with your intro. Start in the middle, right? Don't worry about the end. You know, do those last. Obviously, you do the end last. But so many times we're like, chapter one, uh, what do I write? How do I start this? I have no idea, right? I know better, but that's exactly what I did. And so, but anyways, after a couple chapters, like when I was sitting there writing and stuck and frustrated and mad, I would be like, okay, you're doing the same thing you've been doing. Every other time you've sent Haven a drop, she said, this is great. Keep going. I'm loving what's coming up from this. I have no reason to assume that if I keep doing the same process, that it's going to get a different outcome. So just write to have, just write to Haven, sit down, shut up, right? Get to it. And another um, sort of mindset practice that I had, and I got this from Liz Gilbert, I think from Big Magic, was whenever I would get stuck, like I would just tell myself, like, go back in, go back in, right? And sort of that combination of hacks, right? The combination of simple things, like with the Neo, it's not like I could jump to email, it's not like I could jump to social media. It was basically a question, are you going to write or not? Are you going to hit those keys? or? Are you going to get on them keys or not, right? Um, with sort of that mindset of like, just write to Haven, I didn't have to think about, like, it was my job to get words in the damn Neo, right? Mm-hmm. And then with sort of Elizabeth Gilbert's go back in, I was like, just go back in. Like, just see what happens, right? And also, like, it's not 1130 yet. Don't walk home, right? You're not done yet. And so just... Every day, right? For most days, it was that. And it even got worse because, again, I travel, I speak, I do all sorts of things. I would miss days, right? And so I wrote myself a cold start routine of exactly and printed it out of exactly what I should do if I haven't written for the last three days. Oh, wow. Right? Well, so, so what was I got to know? Order coffee. 
ask for the Wi-Fi before you sit down because you always forget the Wi-Fi before you sit down. Two, make your daily plan. Three, drink the coffee that was delivered. Four, review the last bit of writing that you did. Five, write. Because I also had a writing log where every day it was, it was a printout of an Excel spreadsheet where it was like, you know, today is the, the 10th for it to be like 810, started writing at 730, right? Wrote until 1115, wrote about this. Here's how many words it was, so on and so forth. So I would just look at the writing log. What did I write about last time? That And the other thing about that writing log for me was that like it really deburred the story of like, what I could and couldn't write because I really, I just had enough data points to see like in about two hours, I'm going to write between 1200 and 1500 words. I just know that that's, that's what all of my data suggests. All I have to do, like if I'm not meeting my deadlines, if I'm not meeting my word count, it comes down to not sitting down for two hours. Right. And so I was able to estimate like how long it would take me to do things just based upon how long it took me to do things in the past. You get enough data, you can see it. And so it's just really affirming tool where it's like, you know, eight, nine, 300 words. Why was there 300 words? You look, oh, I was there for 30 minutes before I jumped to email. That's why there's 300 words. And so just built up enough of that momentum of habits and specificity that um, it became one of those things of like, just sit, sit down in this context with this tool without distractions and get it done. And I recognize that I'm in a privileged position because I, I get that not everyone can have a $10 day coffee budget. Like that may not work for them. Um, I would suggest maybe we do when you look at maybe how much you're paying for cable television, right? Maybe how much you're paying for video games or pedicures or wine or whatever. Like there seems to be money we can steal for other reasons, right? For me, it was just like, this is what I'm stealing it for. Um, but um, I'm not... I'm not as disciplined as people think I am. Like I'm not just like the ironclad. I'm just going to focus on it. It's like I had to create so many um, systems and structure that made my choice architecture such that the only default was to write and that I wasn't spending willpower. I wasn't working on anything. It was like, I'm in the place where writing happens. My only thing is, did I get myself to the place where writing happens with enough time for writing to happen? Yeah. The, the architecture piece is huge. And I very similarly, when I wrote my ebook, I, as you call it, thrashed all over the place for months and months, hired a developmental editor, still thrashed about it and went back and forth. Finally, like killed the Wi-Fi, went to a cafe, got the latte and did that for several times a week for couple months <laughs> and and had a latte budget and uh but got it done but i was blocking social media on all my stuff i was like creating the environment the structure designing it with intention like you're talking about that got it done and, and this has been reflective of so many authors i've talked to yeah this is what it is i mean right now i'm working on a ipad mini with a um, logitech kb40 keyboard Right. Um, and because what I learned from that process of writing the book is that I work better on smaller screens. Um, it also turns out that I have to be much more intentional about switching away from a Ulysses on the, on the iPad than I do just clicking a mouse on the computer. Right. And so um, right now I'm able to keep my word count about the same as I was with the Neo without the sort of dumb tech aspect of it. But you better believe like if I find myself, but also 
this is a show about tech minimalism, so I can go there. Also, on that iPad, there's no social media. There is no email. There's no distraction. Like if you were to look at the home screen, it's Ulysses, which is what I write in. It's Audible, because I listen to audiobooks. You know, Spotify, Pandora, music. Um, I may have Goodreads, but I might have decided that that distracted me. And so it's just a few apps. And I'm basically trying to keep it as pure to the um, Neo as possible. And I'm like, what do I need? I need, I need to listen to music, because that's part of my writing process. I need a screen that I can type in. I need a big enough keyboard. And that's it. If it's not that, it's not going on the device because that device's job is to help me get words on screen. And I'm going to pause here because over the last couple of decades when it comes to technology, we've sort of adopted the one size fits all or the we've adopted the Swiss army knife is better than a specialized tool. But think about it. If we were carpenters or we were artists of a different type, like we would have four different kinds of saws because those saws have a specific purpose and you don't try to use one saw, one fine tooth saw to do rough cutting. We would know what we were trying to do and make sure that our tools supported us in doing that. Right now, I think we spend so much time trying to make our tools support us that there are cheaper options. Like the Neo costs 25 to 45 bucks on eBay right now, right? Less than the cost of the keyboard that you're trying to use to hack your iPad, right? It just doesn't have all the other stuff. So people are like, I need a, I need to be able to do email. Really? If you're going down to the coffee shop to write, why do you need to do email, right? Why do you need to be on these sort of things? And so I think that we have a lot more power to choose our technological, um, physical, emotional, and social environment that we don't take advantage for. And we wonder why we're overwhelmed and we wonder why like, we're having to focus so hard. Well, you put yourself in an environment that makes you have to work hard to focus. Look that. Yep, totally. And and so much about our modern environment too is uh, hacking attention for profit. Mm-hmm. And so designing. I mean, this is minimalism comes into play, right? Just and I've been talking more about minimalism as like just removing distractions, like just get distractions out of the way. You know, that, that's all it needs to be. It doesn't need to be a title. Yeah. It, it it can just be that. And and I think it's easy to forget that that design aspect of of this stuff to make it work for us is also a project and is also in, in your language and and it is also uh something we need to be super conscious of because the work just isn't going to happen automatically with all this other stuff going on it's, yeah. it's just hard yeah so while we're on there like i i encourage people to put anything new like this in what i call a new project cocoon and to avoid making any conclusions about how much you like it or don't like it until you've had two or three weeks with it. Because part of what it might just be is chain shock, right? There's something different and we don't like different, right? Or we love different because it's new, but it's not actually working for us, right? When we get down to it. And so um, it's like very few of us, well, I don't know if that's true. I don't know what people shopping habits, but it's like going to the store and buying a pair of pants off the shelf. And it feels really great at the store, but then when you get home, you realize that like it's rubbing in all the wrong places. Our first thought isn't to get rid of the jeans for most people, right? It's maybe I need to wear it in a little bit. <laughs> maybe I need to see what happens with this. But I think anytime you're adopting it, whether you're you know killing the Wi-Fi from your computer, yeah, when you walk down to the coffee shop, I'm just going to tell you, it's not going to be like, great, it's perfect. I don't have any distractions. You're going to be frustrated because your body and your mind are used to using that device a certain way. 
right? And it can't use it that way. So it's pushing the button and it's not getting the dopamine hit that it used to. <laughs> it's frustrating. Yeah. Right? Yeah. That's a part of the process. It's not you. It's just that you're not getting that dopamine hit that the that the that we're used to. But once you sit with it for three or four days, right, then you're like, oh, that's not what I do here. You you learn differently. Now sometimes, it, yeah. yeah, you reprogram yourself. But sometimes on that first day, you're like, this is amazing. What do I do with myself? So when I want to talk, I mean, when we're talking about cognitive, emotional, social space, one of the reasons we avoid creating those choices for ourselves and those defaults for ourselves is because we literally don't know what the hell to do with ourselves once we have it. It's super uncomfortable to sit with yourself sometimes. It's super uncomfortable when you created that positive boundary such that you can go to the place to get the work done. And then you sit there and you're like, I got nothing. Like the whole story has been that if it were just the time and the space, I, this would be golden. And you create the time and the space and it's not golden. That's really hard for people. Yeah. Right. And so sure. sitting with the silence and, you know, there's, there's a point to where, you know, you, it feels good to break the twitch. And then there's that point before you've realized what life can be after the twitch. And then that's sort of that in-between zone that's hella uncomfortable. Yes. And because we sense that discomfort, we block the whole process and go back because it's way less uncomfortable than that middle period before we figure out how to rec- how to use that time we've reclaimed. For sure. I mean, this goes to the flow theory, right? Mm-hmm. About it's super uncomfortable at first. And but the longer you sit in it, the longer you be with it, mm-hmm. the the more zoned in you'll get. The more you know, there is more. If you just sit with that blank page for a little bit, okay, this is not comfortable, yeah. right? And, so your new um, book, Start Finishing: How to Go from Idea to Done, is coming out very soon. It's available for pre-orders as soon as this podcast goes live. Actually, mm-hmm. who is that book for? So that book is for people who one have more ideas than they do time. And two, know that there is some project or some idea that they've punted into someday when the time is right or when maybe they have more resources, like someday they're going to work on that project, but that Sunday keeps disappearing on them, never comes. And so um, it's for everyone in that position and for people who are ready for the work of their lives to have just as much of a seat at the table as the life of their work. So yes, it's a productivity book about your economic work, but I want us to spend more time prioritizing the work of our lives as well. As is tradition on the Break the Switch podcast, we have this uh, this jar of questions mm-hmm. that have been left by previous guests. Okay. And you will leave one of your own before we go. Okay. So if you don't mind uh, pulling one of those questions mm-hmm. and giving, giving it a go. All right. So what scares me about this is because the question I'm going to leave, the next guest is going to hate. And so... Um, you can. I always say, you can leave any question you want, but you have to put your name on it. Oh, okay. That's the, the quality. I'm also that guy, so I'm not worried about leaving my name on it, but I'm worried about someone doing what I did to them. Right, so Stephanie Domrose, how are you feeling now that your interview is over? Oh, hilarious. Yeah. Exciting. Um, right? I, I love talking about this stuff. I'm also really grateful for the time um, that you've taken for this as a podcaster myself. I know how much time it takes to produce a good episode. So I'm just really humbled that you've had me here to talk about this. Likewise, I appreciate you joining me and, and thank you. Um, yeah. Thanks so much for your time. And I'm excited to share this conversation for sure. Cool. Cool.